spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here are your hosts, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic, and sometimes not-so-classic, monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Bryce, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the Head of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster Kid Radio! Welcome. It's the final week, I believe, of Bronte, Bronte, Bronte. Sorry, Anne, we never got to you. Maybe next time. We're going to be finishing off with Withering Heights. And we will also have some Ken Height talking about Withering Heights. Funny how that happened. And also, thank you for listening. And next month, I think is Ghost Stories, because it's October. And if you want to help the show, want to know what's going on, you want to be a part of it, you've got some stuff that you want to do, read, whatever... Go to pgttcm.com, subscribe where you subscribe to podcasts, tell your friends to subscribe, rate, review, talk about it, contact us, find out how to get some cool stickers, and we'll set you up. So, pgttcm.com, on Facebook as pgttcm, and Black Clock Audio Tales. Also on Instagram as Black Clock Audio Tales and Twitter, which we don't use that much as Black Clock Audio Tales, PGTTCM. Thank you again, and yeah, you can also check us out on YouTube and listen to Monster Kid Radio and look for me next week at the HP Lovecraft Film Festival in Portland, Oregon at the Hollywood Theater, even though I'll probably be over at the Hollywood Senior Center doing role playing game stuff and being on panels. Recording by Ruth Golding. Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte. Chapter 29. The evening after the funeral, my young lady and I were seated in the library, now musing mournfully, one of us despairingly, on our loss, now venturing conjectures as to the gloomy future. We had just agreed the best destiny which could await Catherine would be a permission to continue resident at the Grange, at least during Linton's life, he being allowed to join her there, and I to remain as housekeeper. That seemed rather too favourable an arrangement to be hoped for, and yet I did hope, and began to cheer up under the prospect of retaining my home and my employment and, above all, my beloved young mistress, when a servant, one of the discarded ones not yet departed, rushed hastily in and said, that devil Heathcliff was coming through the court 
should he fasten the door in his face. If we had been mad enough to order that proceeding, we had not time. He made no ceremony of knocking or announcing his name. He was master, and availed himself of the master's privilege to walk straight in without saying a word. The sound of our informant's voice directed him to the library. He entered, and motioning him out, shut the door. It was the same room into which he had been ushered as a guest eighteen years before. The same moon shone through the window, and the same autumn landscape lay outside. We had not yet lighted a candle, but all the apartment was visible, even to the portraits on the wall, the splendid head of Mrs. Linton, and the graceful one of her husband. Heathcliff advanced to the hearth. Time had little altered his person either. There was the same man, his dark face rather sallower and more composed, his frame a stone or two heavier, perhaps, and no other difference. Catherine had risen with an impulse to dash out when she saw him. "'Stop!' he said, arresting her by the arm. "'No more runnings away. Where would you go?' I'm come to fetch you home, and I hope you'll be a dutiful daughter, and not encourage my son to further disobedience. I was embarrassed how to punish him when I discovered his part in the business. It's such a cobweb. A pinch would annihilate him. But you'll see by his look that he has received his due. I brought him down one evening the day before yesterday, and just set him in a chair, and never touched him afterwards. I sent Hareton out, and we had the room to ourselves. In two hours I called Joseph to carry him up again, and since then my presence is as potent on his nerves as a ghost, and I fancy he sees me often, though I am not near. Hareton says he wakes and shrieks in the night by the hour together and calls you to protect him from me. And whether you like your precious mate or not, you must come. Is your concern now. I yield all my interest in him to you. Why not let Catherine continue here, I pleaded, and send Master Linton to her? As you hate them both, you'd not miss them. There can only be a daily plague to your unnatural heart. I'm seeking a tenant for the Grange, he answered, and I want my children about me, to be sure. Besides, that lass owes me her services for her bread. I'm not going to nurture her in luxury and idleness after Linton is gone. Make haste and get ready now, and don't oblige me to compel you. "'I shall,' said Catherine. "'Linton is all I have to love in the world, "'and though you have done what you could to make him hateful to me, "'and me to him, you cannot make us hate each other. "'And I defy you to hurt him when I am by, "'and I defy you to frighten me.' "'You are a boastful champion,' replied Heathcliff. 
but I don't like you well enough to hurt him. You shall get the full benefit of the torment as long as it lasts. It is not I who will make him hateful to you. It is his own sweet spirit. He's as bitter as gall at your desertion and its consequences. Don't expect thanks for this noble devotion. I heard him draw a pleasant picture to Zilla of what he would do if he were as strong as I. The inclination is there, and his very weakness will sharpen his wits to find a substitute for strength. I know he has a bad nature, said Catherine. He's your son, but I'm glad I've a better to forgive it. And I know he loves me, and for that reason I love him. Mr. Heathcliff, you have nobody to love you. And however miserable you make us, we shall still have the revenge of thinking that your cruelty arises from your greater misery. You are miserable, are you not? Lonely like the devil, and envious like him. Nobody loves you. Nobody will cry for you when you die. I wouldn't be you. Catherine spoke with a kind of dreary triumph. She seemed to have made up her mind to enter into the spirit of her future family and draw pleasure from the griefs of her enemies. You shall be sorry to be yourself presently, said her father-in-law. If you will stand there another minute, be gone, witch, and get your things. She scornfully withdrew. In her absence, I began to beg for Zilla's place at the heights, offering to resign mine to her, but he would suffer it on no account. He bid me be silent, and then, for the first time, allowed himself a glance round the room and a look at the pictures. Having studied Mrs. Linton's, he said, I shall have that home, not because I need it, but... He turned abruptly to the fire and continued with what, for lack of a better word, I must call a smile. I'll tell you what I did yesterday. I got the sexton who was digging Linton's grave to remove the earth off her coffin lid and I opened it. I thought once I would have stayed there. When I saw her face again, it is hers yet. He had hard work to stir me, but he said it would change if the air blew on it, and so I struck one side of the coffin loose and covered it up. Not Linton's side, damn him. I wish he'd been soldered in lead. And I bribed the sexton to pull it away when I'm laid there and slide mine out too. I'll have it made so. And then by the time Linton gets to us, he'll not know which is which. You were very wicked, Mr. Heathcliff, I exclaimed. Were you not ashamed to disturb the dead? I disturbed nobody, Nelly, he replied, and I gave some ease to myself. I shall be a great deal more comfortable now, and you will have a better chance of keeping me underground when I get there. 
disturbed her? No, she has disturbed me night and day through eighteen years, incessantly, remorselessly, till yesternight. And yesternight I was tranquil. I dreamt I was sleeping the last sleep by that sleeper, with my heart stopped and my cheek frozen against hers. And if she had been dissolved into earth, or worse, what would you have dreamt of then? I said. Of dissolving with her, and being more happy still, he answered. Do you suppose I dread any change of that sort? I expected such a transformation on raising the lid. But I'm better pleased that it should not commence till I share it. Besides, unless I had received a distinct impression of her passionless features, that strange feeling would hardly have been removed. It began oddly. You know I was wild after she died, and eternally from dawn to dawn praying her to return to me her spirit. I have a strong faith in ghosts. I have a conviction that they can and do exist among us. The day she was buried, there came a fall of snow. In the evening, I went to the churchyard. It blew bleak as winter, all round was solitary. I didn't fear that a fool of a husband would wander up the glen so late, and no one else had business to bring them there. Being alone, and conscious two yards of loose earth was the sole barrier between us, I said to myself, I'll have her in my arms again. If she be cold, I'll think it is this north wind that chills me, and if she be motionless, it is sleep. I got a spade from the tool-house and began to delve with all my might. It scraped the coffin. I fell to work with my hands. The wood commenced cracking about the screws. I was on the point of attaining my object when it seemed that I heard a sigh from someone above, close at the edge of the grave, and bending down. If I can only get this off, I muttered, I wish they may shovel in the earth over us both. And I wrenched at it more desperately still. There was another sigh, close at my ear. I appeared to feel the warm breath of it, displacing the sleet-laden wind, I knew no living thing in flesh and blood was by, but as certainly as you perceive the approach to some substantial body in the dark, though it cannot be discerned, so certainly I felt that Cathy was there, not under me, but on the earth. A sudden sense of relief flowed from my heart through every limb. I relinquished my labour of agony, and turned consoled at once, unspeakably consoled. Her presence was with me, 
It remained while I refilled the grave and led me home. You may laugh if you will, but I was sure I should see her there. I was sure she was with me, and I could not help talking to her. Having reached the heights, I rushed eagerly to the door. It was fastened, and I remember that accursed Earnshaw and my wife opposed my entrance. I remember stopping to kick the breath out of him, and then hurrying upstairs to my room and hers. I looked round impatiently. I felt her by me. I could almost see her, and yet I could not. I ought to have sweat blood then from the anguish of my yearning, from the fervour of my supplications, to have but one glimpse. I had not one. She showed herself, as she often was in life, a devil to me. And since then, sometimes more and sometimes less, I've been the sport of that intolerable torture. Infernal! Keeping my nerves at such a stretch that if they had not resembled catgut, they would long ago have relaxed to the feebleness of Linton's. When I sat in the house with Hareton, it seemed that on going out I should meet her. When I walked on the moors, I should meet her coming in. When I went from home, I hastened to return. She must be somewhere at the heights, I was certain. And when I slept in her chamber, I was beaten out of that. I couldn't lie there. For the moment I closed my eyes, she was either outside the window, or sliding back the panels, or entering the room or even resting her darling head on the same pillow as she did when a child. And I must open my lids to see. And so I opened and closed them a hundred times a night to be always disappointed. It racked me. I've often groaned aloud till that old rascal Joseph no doubt believed that my conscience was playing the fiend inside of me. Now, since I've seen her, I'm pacified a little. It was a strange way of killing. Not by inches, but by fractions of hairbreadths, to beguile me with the spectre of a hope through eighteen years. Mr. Heathcliff paused and wiped his forehead. His hair clung to it wet with perspiration. His eyes were fixed on the red embers of the fire, the brows not contracted but raised next the temples, diminishing the grim aspect of his countenance but imparting a peculiar look of trouble and a painful appearance of mental tension towards one absorbing subject. He only half addressed me, and I maintained silence. I didn't like to hear him talk. 
After a short period he resumed his meditation on the picture, took it down, and leant it against the sofa to contemplate it at better advantage. And while so occupied, Catherine entered, announcing that she was ready when her pony should be saddled. "'Send that over to-morrow,' said Heathcliff to me. Then turning to her, he added, "'You may do without your pony. It is a fine evening, and you'll need no ponies at Wuthering Heights. For what journeys you take, your own feet will serve you. Come along.' "'Good-bye, Ellen,' whispered my dear little mistress. As she kissed me, her lips felt like ice. "'Come and see me, Ellen. Don't forget.' "'Take care you do no such thing, Mrs. Dean,' said her new father. "'When I wish to speak to you, I'll come here. "'I want none of your prying at my house.' "'He signed her to precede him, "'and casting back a look that cut my heart, she obeyed. "'I watched them from the window walk down the garden.' Heathcliff fixed Catherine's arm under his, though she disputed the act at first, evidently, and with rapid strides he hurried her into the alley whose trees concealed them. End of chapter 29 Recording by Ruth Golding Recording by Ruth Golding Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte Chapter 30 I have paid a visit to the Heights, but I have not seen her since she left. Joseph held the door in his hand when I called to ask after her, and wouldn't let me pass. He said Mrs. Linton was thrang, and the master was not in. Zillah has told me something of the way they go on, otherwise I should hardly know who was dead and who living. She thinks Catherine haughty and does not like her. I can guess by her talk. My young lady asked some aid of her when she first came, but Mr. Heathcliff told her to follow her own business and let his daughter-in-law look after herself, and Zilla willingly acquiesced, being a narrow-minded, selfish woman. Catherine evinced a child's annoyance at this neglect, repaid it with contempt, and thus enlisted my informant among her enemies as securely as if she had done her some great wrong. I had a long talk with Zillah about six weeks ago, a little before you came, one day when we foregathered on the moor, and this is what she told me. "'The first thing Mrs. Linton did,' she said, on her arrival at the Heights, was to run upstairs without even wishing good evening to me and Joseph. She shut herself into Linton's room, and remained till morning. Then, while the master and Earnshaw were at breakfast, she entered the house, and asked all in a quiver, if the doctor might be sent for. Her cousin was very ill. "'We know that,' answered Heathcliff. "'But his life is not worth a farthing, and I won't spend a farthing on him.' "'But I cannot tell how to do,' she said. "'And if nobody will help me, he'll die.' "'Walk out of the room,' cried the master, "'and let me never hear a word more about him. "'None here care what becomes of him.' 
if you do, act the nurse. If you do not, lock him up and leave him. Then she began to bother me, and I said I'd had enough plague with the tiresome thing. We each had our tasks, and hers was to wait on Linton. Mr. Heathcliff bid me leave that labour to her. How they managed together I can't tell. I fancy he fretted a great deal and moaned his cell night and day, and she had precious little rest. One could guess by her white face and heavy eyes. She sometimes came into the kitchen all wildered like and looked as if she would fain beg assistance. But I was not going to disobey the master. I never dare disobey him, Mrs. Dean. And though I thought it wrong that Kenneth should not be sent for, it was no concern of mine either to advise or complain, and I always refused to meddle. Once or twice after we had gone to bed, I've happened to open my door again and seen her sitting crying on the stairs top, and then I've shut myself in quick for fear of being moved to interfere. I did pity her then, I'm sure. Still, I didn't wish to lose my place, you know. At last, one night, she came boldly into my chamber and frightened me out of my wits by saying, "'Tell Mr. Heathcliff that his son is dying.' "'I'm sure he is this time. "'Get up instantly and tell him.' "'Having uttered this speech, she vanished again. "'I lay a quarter of an hour listening and trembling. "'Nothing stirred. The house was quiet. "'She's mistaken,' I said to myself. "'He's got over it. I needn't disturb them.' "'And I began to doze.' but my sleep was marred a second time by a sharp ringing of the bell, the only bell we have, put up on purpose for Linton. And the master called to me to see what was the matter, and informed them that he wouldn't have that noise repeated. I delivered Catherine's message. He cursed to himself, and in a few minutes came out with a lighted candle, and proceeded to their room. I followed, Mrs. Heathcliff was seated by the bedside, with her hands folded on her knees. Her father-in-law went up, held the light to Linton's face, looked at him, and touched him. Afterwards he turned to her. "'Now, Catherine,' he said, "'how do you feel?' She was dumb. "'How do you feel, Catherine?' he repeated. "'He's safe.' "'And I'm free,' she answered. "'I should feel well, but,' she continued with a bitterness she couldn't conceal, "'you have left me so long to struggle against death alone "'that I feel and see only death. "'I feel like death.' "'And she looked like it, too. "'I gave her a little wine.' Hareton and Joseph, who had been wakened by the ringing and the sound of feet, and heard our talk from outside, now entered. Joseph was fain, I believe, of the lad's removal. Hareton seemed a thought bothered, though he was more taken up with staring at Catherine than thinking of Linton. But the master bid him get off to bed again. We didn't want his help. He afterwards made Joseph remove the body to his chamber, and told me to return to mine, and Mrs. Heathcliff remained by herself. 
in the morning he sent me to tell her she must come down to breakfast. She had undressed and appeared going to sleep and said she was ill, at which I hardly wondered. I informed Mr. Heathcliff, and he replied, Well, let her be till after the funeral, and go up now and then to get her what is needful, and as soon as she seems better, tell me. Cathy stayed upstairs a fortnight, according to Zilla, who visited her twice a day and would have been rather more friendly, but her attempts at increasing kindness were proudly and promptly repelled. Heathcliff went up once to show her Linton's will. He had bequeathed the whole of his, and what had been her, movable property, to his father. The poor creature was threatened or coaxed into that act during her week's absence when his uncle died. The lands, being a minor, he could not meddle with. However, Mr. Heathcliff has claimed and kept them in his wife's right, and his also— I suppose legally. At any rate, Catherine, destitute of cash and friends, cannot disturb his possession. Nobody, said Zilla, ever approached her door except that once, but I, and nobody asked anything about her. The first occasion of her coming down into the house was on a Sunday afternoon. She had cried out when I carried up her dinner that she couldn't bear any longer being in the cold, and I told her the master was going to Thrushcross Grange, and Earnshaw and I needn't hinder her from descending. So as soon as she heard Heathcliff's horse trot off, she made her appearance, donned in black, and her yellow curls combed back behind her ears as plain as a Quaker. She couldn't comb them out. "'Joseph and I generally go to chapel on Sundays. "'The kirk, you know, has no minister now,' explained Mrs. Dean, "'and they call the Methodist or Baptist place, I can't say which it is, at Gimmerton, a chapel.' "'Joseph had gone,' she continued, "'but I thought it proper to bide at home. "'Young folks are always the better for an elder's overlooking.' "'and Hareton, with all his bashfulness, isn't a model of nice behaviour. "'I let him know that his cousin would very likely sit with us, "'and she had been always used to see the Sabbath respected, "'so he had as good leave his guns and bits of indoor work alone while she stayed. "'He coloured up at the news and cast his eyes over his hands and clothes. "'The train oil and gunpowder were shoved out of sight in a minute.' I saw he meant to give her his company, and I guessed by his way he wanted to be presentable. So, laughing, as I durst not laugh when the master is by, I offered to help him if he would, and joked at his confusion. He grew sullen and began to swear. Now, Mrs. Dean, Zilla went on, seeing me not pleased by her manner, "'You happen think your young lady too fine for Mr. Hareton, "'and happen you're right, "'but I own I should love well to bring her pride a peg lower. "'And what will all her learning and her daintiness do for her now? "'She's as poor as you or I. "'Poorer, I'll be bound, you're saying, "'and I'm doing my little all that road.' "'Hareton allowed Zilla to give him her aid, "'and she flattered him into a good humour. So when Catherine came, 
half forgetting her former insults, he tried to make himself agreeable by the housekeeper's account. Mrs. walked in, she said, as chill as an icicle and as high as a princess. I got up and offered her my seat in the armchair. No, she turned up her nose at my civility. Earnshaw rose too and bid her come to the settle and sit close by the fire. He was sure she was starved. I've been starved a month and more, she answered, resting on the word as scornful as she could. And she got a chair for herself and placed it at a distance from both of us. Having sat till she was warm, she began to look round and discovered a number of books on the dresser. She was instantly upon her feet again, stretching to reach them, but they were too high up. Her cousin, after watching her endeavours a while, at last summoned courage to help her. She held her frock and he filled it with the first that came to hand. That was a great advance for the lad. She didn't thank him, still he felt gratified that she had accepted his assistance, and ventured to stand behind as she examined them, and even to stoop and point out what struck his fancy in certain old pictures which they contained. Nor was he daunted by the saucy style in which she jerked the page from his finger. He contented himself with going a bit farther back and looking at her instead of the book. She continued reading or seeking for something to read. His attention became by degrees quite centred in the study of her thick silky curls. Her face he couldn't see and she couldn't see him. And perhaps not quite awake to what he did, but attracted like a child to a candle, at last he proceeded from staring to touching. He put out his hand and stroked one curl as gently as if it were a bird. He might have stuck a knife into her neck. She started round in such a taking. Get away this moment! How dare you touch me! Why are you stopping there? She cried in a tone of disgust. I can't endure you! I'll go upstairs again if you come near me! Mr. Hareton recoiled, looking as foolish as he could do. He sat down in the settle very quiet, and she continued turning over her volumes another half hour. Finally, Earnshaw crossed over and whispered to me, Will you ask her to read to us, Zilla? I'm stalled of doing that, and I do like, I could like to hear her. Do not say I wanted it, but ask of yourself. Mr. Hareton wishes you would read to us, ma'am. I said immediately. He'd take it very kindly. He'd be much obliged. She frowned and, looking up, answered, Mr. Hareton and the whole set of you will be good enough to understand that I reject any pretense at kindness you have the hypocrisy to offer. I despise you and will have nothing to say to any of you. When I would have given my life for one kind word, even to see one of your faces, you all kept off. But I won't complain to you. I'm driven down here by the cold, not either to amuse you or enjoy your society. What could I have done? began Earnshaw. How was I to blame? Oh, you are an exception, answered Mrs. Heathcliff. 
I never missed such a concern as you. But I offered more than once and asked, he said, kindling up at her pertness. I asked Mr. Heathcliff to let me wake for you. Be silent. I'll go out of doors or anywhere rather than have your disagreeable voice in my ear, said my lady. Hareton muttered she might go to hell for him, and unslinging his gun, restrained himself from his Sunday occupations no longer. He talked now freely enough, and she presently saw fit to retreat to her solitude, but the frost had set in, and in spite of her pride she was forced to condescend to our company more and more. However, I took care there should be no further scorning at my good nature. Ever since I've been as stiff as herself, and she has no lover or liker among us, and she does not deserve one, for let them say the least word to her and she'll curl back without respect of anyone. She'll snap at the master himself, and as good as dares him to thrash her, and the more hurt she gets, the more venomous she grows. At first, on hearing this account from Zilla, I determined to leave my situation, take a cottage, and get Catherine to come and live with me. But Mr. Heathcliff would as soon permit that as he would set up Hareton in an independent house, and I can see no remedy at present, unless she could marry again, and that scheme it does not come within my province to arrange. Thus ended Mrs. Dean's story. Notwithstanding the doctor's prophecy, I am rapidly recovering strength, and though it be only the second week in January, I propose getting out on horseback in a day or two, and riding over to Wuthering Heights, to inform my landlord that I shall spend the next six months in London, and if he likes, he may look out for another tenant to take the place after October. I would not pass another winter here for much. End of chapter 30 Recording by Ruth Golding Public Domain Recording by Ruth Golding Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte Chapter 31 Yesterday was bright, calm, and frosty. I went to the heights as I proposed. My housekeeper entreated me to bear a little note from her to her young lady, and I did not refuse, for the worthy woman was not conscious of anything odd in her request. The front door stood open, but the jealous gate was fastened as at my last visit. I knocked and invoked Earnshaw from among the garden beds. He unchained it, and I entered. The fellow is as handsome a rustic as need be seen. I took particular notice of him this time, but then he does his best apparently to make the least of his advantages. I asked if Mr. Heathcliff were at home. He answered no, but he would be in at dinner time. It was eleven o'clock, and I announced my intention of going in and waiting for him at which he immediately flung down his tools and accompanied me in the office of watchdog, not as a substitute for the host. We entered together. Catherine was there, making herself useful in preparing some vegetables for the approaching meal. She looked more sulky and less spirited than when I had seen her first. She hardly raised her eyes to notice me, 
and continued her employment with the same disregard to common forms of politeness as before, never returning my bow and good morning by the slightest acknowledgment. She does not seem so amiable, I thought, as Mrs. Dean would persuade me to believe. She's a beauty, it is true, but not an angel. Earnshaw surlily bid her remove her things to the kitchen. Remove them yourself, she said, pushing them from her as soon as she had done, and retiring to a stool by the window, where she began to carve figures of birds and beasts out of the turnip parings in her lap. I approached her, pretending to desire a view of the garden, and, as I fancied, adroitly dropped Mrs. Dean's note onto her knee, unnoticed by Hareton. But she asked aloud, "'What is that?' and chucked it off. "'A letter from your old acquaintance, the housekeeper at the Grange,' I answered, annoyed at her exposing my kind deed, and fearful lest it should be imagined a missive of my own.' She would gladly have gathered it up at this information, but Hareton beat her. He seized and put it in his waistcoat, saying Mr. Heathcliff should look at it first. Thereat Catherine silently turned her face from us, and very stealthily drew out her pocket-handkerchief and applied it to her eyes. And her cousin, after struggling a while to keep down his softer feelings, pulled out the letter and flung it on the floor beside her as ungraciously as he could. Catherine caught and perused it eagerly. Then she put a few questions to me concerning the inmates, rational and irrational, of her former home, and gazing towards the hills, murmured in soliloquy, "'I should like to be riding Minnie down there. I should like to be climbing up there.' "'Oh, I'm tired. I'm stalled, Hareton.' "'And she leant her pretty head back against the sill "'with half a yawn and half a sigh, "'and lapsed into an aspect of abstracted sadness, "'neither caring nor knowing whether we remarked her. "'Mrs. Heathcliff,' I said, after sitting some time mute, "'you are not aware that I am an acquaintance of yours?' "'so intimate that I think it's strange you won't come and speak to me. "'My housekeeper never wearies of talking about and praising you, "'and she'll be greatly disappointed if I return with no news of or from you, "'except that you received her letter and said nothing.' "'She appeared to wonder at this speech and asked, "'Does Ellen like you?' "'Yes, very well,' I replied hesitatingly. "'You must tell her,' she continued, "'that I would answer her letter, "'but I have no materials for writing, "'not even a book from which I might tear relief.' "'No books!' I exclaimed. "'How do you contrive to live here without them, "'if I may take the liberty to inquire? "'Though provided with a large library, "'I am frequently very dull at the Grange. "'Take my books away and I should be desperate.' "'I was always reading when I had them,' said Catherine. "'And Mr. Heathcliff never reads, "'so he took it into his head to destroy my books. "'I have not had a glimpse of one for weeks. 
Only once I searched through Joseph's store of theology to his great irritation. And once, Hareton, I came upon a secret stock in your room, some Latin and Greek, and some tales and poetry, all old friends. I brought the last here, and you gathered them as a magpie gathers silver spoons for the mere love of stealing. They are of no use to you, or else you concealed them in the bad spirit that, as you cannot enjoy them, nobody else shall. Perhaps your envy counselled Mr. Heathcliff to rob me of my treasures. But I've most of them written on my brain and printed in my heart, and you cannot deprive me of those. Earnshaw blushed crimson when his cousin made this revelation of his private literary accumulations, and stammered an indignant denial of her accusations. "'Mr. Hareton is desirous of increasing his amount of knowledge,' I said, coming to his rescue. "'He is not envious, but emulous of your attainments. "'He'll be a clever scholar in a few years. "'And he wants me to sink into a dunce meantime,' answered Catherine. "'Yes, I hear him trying to spell and read to himself, "'and pretty blunders he makes.' "'I wish you would repeat Chevy Chase as you did yesterday. "'It was extremely funny. "'I heard you, and I heard you turning over the dictionary "'to seek out the hard words, "'and then cursing because you couldn't read their explanations.' "'The young man evidently thought it too bad "'that he should be laughed at for his ignorance, "'and then laughed at for trying to remove it. "'I had a similar notion.' and, remembering Mrs. Dean's anecdote of his first attempt at enlightening the darkness in which he had been reared, I observed, "'But, Mrs. Heathcliff, we have each had a commencement, and each stumbled and tottered on the threshold. Had our teachers scorned instead of aiding us, we should stumble and totter yet.' "'Oh,' she replied, "'I don't wish to limit his acquirements.' "'Still he has no right to appropriate what is mine, "'and make it ridiculous to me with his vile mistakes and mispronunciations. "'Those books, both prose and verse, are consecrated to me by other associations, "'and I hate to have them debased and profaned in his mouth. "'Besides of all, he has selected my favourite pieces that I love the most to repeat, "'as if out of deliberate malice.' Hareton's chest heaved in silence a minute. He laboured under a severe sense of mortification and wrath, which it was no easy task to suppress. I rose, and from a gentlemanly idea of relieving his embarrassment, took up my station in the doorway, surveying the external prospect as I stood. He followed my example and left the room, but presently reappeared, "'bearing half a dozen volumes in his hands, "'which he threw into Catherine's lap, exclaiming, "'Take them. I never want to hear or read or think of them again.' "'I won't have them now,' she answered. "'I shall connect them with you and hate them.' "'She opened one that had obviously been often turned over, "'and read a portion in the drawling tone of a beginner, "'then laughed and threw it from her.' "'And listen!' 
she continued provokingly, commencing a verse of an old ballad in the same fashion. But his self-love would endure no further torment. I heard, and not altogether disapprovingly, a manual check given to her saucy tongue. The little wretch had done her utmost to hurt her cousin's sensitive, though uncultivated, feelings, and a physical argument was the only mode he had of balancing the account and repaying its effects on the inflictor. He afterwards gathered the books and hurled them on the fire. I read in his countenance what anguish it was to offer that sacrifice to spleen. I fancied that as they consumed, he recalled the pleasure they had already imparted, and the triumph and ever-increasing pleasure he had anticipated from them, and I fancied I guessed the incitement to his secret studies also. He had been content with daily labour and rough animal enjoyments till Catherine crossed his path. Shame at her scorn and hope of her approval were his first prompters to higher pursuits, and instead of guarding him from one and winning him to the other, his endeavours to raise himself had produced just the contrary result. "'Yes, that's all the good that such a brute as you can get from them!' cried Catherine, sucking her damaged lip and watching the conflagration with indignant eyes. "'You'd better hold your tongue now,' he answered fiercely, and his agitation precluded further speech. He advanced hastily to the entrance where I made way for him to pass, but ere he had crossed the door-stones, Mr. Heathcliff, coming up the causeway, encountered him, and laying hold of his shoulder, asked— "'What's to do now, my lad?' "'Nout, nout,' he said, and broke away to enjoy his grief and anger in solitude. Heathcliff gazed after him and sighed. "'It will be odd if I thwart myself,' he muttered, unconscious that I was behind him. "'But when I look for his father in his face, I find her every day more.' How the devil is he so like? I can hardly bear to see him. He bent his eyes to the ground and walked moodily in. There was a restless, anxious expression in his countenance I had never remarked there before, and he looked sparer in person. His daughter-in-law, on perceiving him through the window, immediately escaped to the kitchen so that I remained alone. "'I'm glad to see you out of doors again, Mr. Lockwood,' he said in reply to my greeting. "'From selfish motives, partly. "'I don't think I could readily supply your loss in this desolation. "'I've wondered more than once what brought you here.' "'An idle whim, I fear, sir,' was my answer. "'Or else an idle whim is going to spirit me away.' I shall set out for London next week, and I must give you warning that I feel no disposition to retain Thrushcross Grange beyond the twelve months I agreed to rent it. I believe I shall not live there any more. Oh, indeed, you're tired of being banished from the world, are you? He said. 
but if you be coming to plead off paying for a place you won't occupy, your journey is useless. I never relent in exacting my due from anyone. I'm coming to plead off nothing about it, I exclaimed, considerably irritated. Should you wish it, I'll settle with you now. And I drew my notebook from my pocket. No, no, he replied coolly. You'll leave sufficient behind to cover your debts if you fail to return. I'm not in such a hurry. Sit down and take your dinner with us. A guest that is safe from repeating his visit can generally be made welcome. Catherine, bring the things in. Where are you? Catherine reappeared, bearing a tray of knives and forks. You may get your dinner with Joseph, muttered Heathcliff aside, and remain in the kitchen till he is gone. She obeyed his directions very punctually. Perhaps she had no temptation to transgress. Living among clowns and misanthropists, she probably cannot appreciate a better class of people when she meets them. With Mr. Heathcliff grim and saturnine on the one hand, and Hareton absolutely dumb on the other, I made a somewhat cheerless meal, and bade adieu early. I would have departed by the back way to get a last glimpse of Catherine, and annoy old Joseph, but Hareton received orders to lead up my horse, and my host himself escorted me to the door, so I could not fulfil my wish. How dreary life gets over in that house, I reflected while riding down the road. What a realisation of something more romantic than a fairy tale it would have been for Mrs. Linton Heathcliff, had she and I struck up an attachment as her good nurse desired, and migrated together into the stirring atmosphere of the town. End of chapter 31 Recording by Ruth Golding Recording by Ruth Golding Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte Chapter 32 1802 This September I was invited to devastate the moors of a friend in the north, and on my journey to his abode I unexpectedly came within fifteen miles of Gimmerton. The ostler at a roadside public house was holding a pail of water to refresh my horses when a cart of very green oats newly reaped passed by, and he remarked, "'Yon's for a Gimmerton, eh? They're allus three week after other folk with their harvest.' "'Gimmerton?' I repeated. My residence in that locality had already grown dim and dreamy. "'Ah, I know. How far is it from this?' "'Up and fourteen mile o'er the hills and a rough road,' he answered. A sudden impulse seized me to visit Thrushcross Grange. It was scarcely noon, and I conceived that I might as well pass the night under my own roof as in an inn.' Besides, I could spare a day easily to arrange matters with my landlord, and thus save myself the trouble of invading the neighbourhood again. Having rested a while, I directed my servant to inquire the way to the village, and with great fatigue to our beasts, we managed the distance in some three hours. 
I left him there and proceeded down the valley alone. The grey church looked greyer and the lonely churchyard lonelier. I distinguished a moor sheep cropping the short turf on the graves. It was sweet warm weather, too warm for travelling, but the heat did not hinder me from enjoying the delightful scenery above and below. Had I seen it nearer August, I'm sure it would have tempted me to waste a month among its solitudes. In winter, nothing more dreary. In summer, nothing more divine than those glens shut in by hills and those bluff, bold swells of heath. I reached the grange before sunset and knocked for admittance, but the family had retreated into the back premises, I judged, by one thin blue wreath. "'curling from the kitchen chimney, and they did not hear. "'I rode into the court. "'Under the porch a girl of nine or ten sat knitting, "'and an old woman reclined on the house-steps, "'smoking a meditative pipe. "'Is Mrs. Dean within?' I demanded of the dame. "'Mistress Dean? Nay,' she answered. "'She doesn't bide here shows up at heights.' "'Are you the housekeeper, then?' I continued. "'Eh, yeah, I'll keep the house,' she replied. "'Well, I'm Mr. Lockwood, the master. "'Are there any rooms to lodge me in, I wonder? "'I wish to stay all night.' "'Master!' she cried in astonishment. "'Wait, who ever knew you were coming? "'You should have sent word. "'There's nowt nor the dry nor mensful about place. "'Nowt there isn't.' She threw down her pipe and bustled in. The girl followed, and I entered too. Soon perceiving that her report was true, and, moreover, that I had almost upset her wits by my unwelcome apparition, I bade her be composed. I would go out for a walk, and meantime she must try to prepare a corner of a sitting-room for me to sup in, and a bedroom to sleep in. No sweeping and dusting, only good fire and dry sheets were necessary. She seemed willing to do her best, though she thrust the hearth-brush into the grates in mistake for the poker, and malappropriated several other articles of her craft, but I retired, confiding in her energy for a resting-place against my return. Wuthering Heights was the goal of my proposed excursion. An afterthought brought me back when I had quitted the court. "'All well at the Heights?' I inquired of the woman." "'Eh, fraughty, no,' she answered, scurrying away with a pan of hot cinders. "'I would have asked why Mrs. Dean had deserted the Grange, "'but it was impossible to delay her at such a crisis, "'so I turned away and made my exit, rambling leisurely along, "'with the glow of a sinking sun behind "'and the mild glory of a rising moon in front, "'one fading and the other brightening.' as I quitted the park and climbed the stony by-road branching off to Mr. Heathcliff's dwelling. Before I arrived in sight of it, all that remained of day was a beamless amber light along the west, but I could see every pebble on the path and every blade of grass by that splendid moon. I had neither to climb the gate nor to knock, it yielded to my hand. That is an improvement, I thought." and I noticed another, by the aid of my nostrils, 
a fragrance of stocks and wallflowers wafted on the air from amongst the homely fruit trees. Both doors and lattices were open, and yet, as is usually the case in a coal district, a fine red fire illumined the chimney. The comfort which the eye derives from it renders the extra heat endurable. But the house of Wuthering Heights is so large that the inmates have plenty of space for withdrawing out of its influence, and accordingly what inmates there were had stationed themselves not far from one of the windows. I could both see them and hear them talk before I entered, and looked and listened in consequence, being moved thereto by a mingled sense of curiosity and envy that grew as I lingered. Contrary, said a voice as sweet as a silver bell. That for the third time you dance. I'm not going to tell you again. Recollect or I'll pull your hair. Contrary, then, answered another in deep but softened tones. And now kiss me for minding so well. No, read it over first correctly without a single mistake. The male speaker began to read. He was a young man, respectably dressed and seated at a table, having a book before him. His handsome features glowed with pleasure, and his eyes kept impatiently wandering from the page to a small white hand over his shoulder, which recalled him by a smart slap on the cheek whenever its owner detected such signs of inattention. Its owner stood behind. Her light shining ringlets blending at intervals with his brown looks as she bent to superintend his studies, and her face-it was lucky he could not see her face, or he would never have been so steady. I could, and I bit my lip in spite at having thrown away the chance I might have had of doing something besides staring at its smiting beauty. The task was done, not free from further blunders, but the pupil claimed a reward and received at least five kisses, which, however, he generously returned. Then they came to the door, and from their conversation I judged they were about to issue out and have a walk on the moors. I supposed I should be condemned in Hareton Earnshaw's heart, if not by his mouth, to the lowest pit in the infernal regions. If I showed my unfortunate person in his neighbourhood then, and feeling very mean and malignant, I skulked round to seek refuge in the kitchen. There was unobstructed admittance on that side also, and at the door sat my old friend Nelly Dean, sewing and singing a song, which was often interrupted from within by harsh words of scorn and intolerance, uttered in far from musical accents. I'd rather by the half of him swearing in me lugs from morn to neat, nor I can ye siver, said the tenant of the kitchen in answer to an unheard speech of Nelly's. It's a blazing shame that I cannot open the blessed book but ye set up them glories to Saturn, and all the flaysome wickednesses that ever were born into the world. Oh, you're a rake nout, and shoes another, and that poor lad'll be lost atween ye. Poor lad! He added with a groan, "He's witched. I'm sartin on. Oh Lord, judge 'em! 
for there's neither law nor justice among where rulers. No, or we should be sitting in flaming faggots, I suppose, retorted the singer. But wished, old man, and read your Bible like a Christian, and never mind me. This is Fairy Annie's wedding, a bonny tune, it goes to a dance. Mrs. Dean was about to recommence when I advanced, and, recognising me directly, she jumped to her feet, crying, "'Why, bless you, Mr. Lockwood! How could you think of returning in this way? All shut up at Thrushcross Grange. You should have given us notice.' "'I've arranged to be accommodated there for as long as I shall stay,' I answered. "'I depart again to-morrow. And how are you transplanted here, Mrs. Dean?' "'Tell me that. "'Zilla left, and Mr. Heathcliff wished me to come "'soon after you went to London, "'and stay till you returned. "'But step in, pray. "'Have you walked from Gimmerton this evening?' "'From the Grange,' I replied. "'And while they make me lodging-room there, "'I want to finish my business with your master, "'because I don't think of having another opportunity in a hurry.' "'What business, sir?' said Nelly, conducting me into the house. "'He's gone out at present, and won't return soon.' "'About the rent,' I answered. "'Oh, then it is with Mrs. Heathcliff you must settle,' she observed. "'Or rather with me. She has not learned to manage her affairs yet, and I act for her. There's nobody else.' I looked surprised. "'Ah!' "'You have not heard of Heathcliff's death, I see,' she continued. "'Heathcliff dead!' I exclaimed, astonished. "'How long ago?' Three months since. But sit down and let me take your hat, and I'll tell you all about it. Stop. You have had nothing to eat, have you?' "'I want nothing. I have ordered supper at home. You sit down, too.' "'I never dreamt of his dying. "'Let me hear how it came to pass. "'You say you don't expect them back for some time, the young people?' "'No, I have to scold them every evening for their late rambles, "'but they don't care for me. "'At least have a drink of our old ale. "'It will do you good. You seem weary.' "'She hastened to fetch it before I could refuse, "'and I heard Joseph asking whether... "'It warn't a crying scandal that she should have followers at her time of life, "'and then to get them jocks out of master's cellar. "'He fair shamed to bide still and see it.' "'She did not stay to retaliate, but re-entered in a minute, "'bearing a reaming silver pint, whose contents I lauded with becoming earnestness. "'And afterwards she furnished me with the sequel of Heathcliff's history.' He had a queer end, as she expressed it. "'I was summoned to Wuthering Heights within a fortnight of your leaving us,' she said, "'and I obeyed joyfully for Catherine's sake. "'My first interview with her grieved and shocked me. "'She had altered so much since our separation. "'Mr. Heathcliff did not explain his reasons "'for taking a new mind about my coming here.' He only told me he wanted me, and he was tired of seeing Catherine. I must make the little parlour my sitting-room, and keep her with me. It was enough if he were obliged to see her once or twice a day. 
she seemed pleased at this arrangement, and by degrees I smuggled over a great number of books and other articles that had formed her amusement at the Grange, and flattered myself we should get on in tolerable comfort. The delusion did not last long. Catherine, contented at first, in a brief space grew irritable and restless. For one thing, she was forbidden to move out of the garden, and it fretted her sadly to be confined to its narrow bounds as spring drew on. For another, in following the house, I was forced to quit her frequently, and she complained of loneliness. She preferred quarrelling with Joseph in the kitchen to sitting at peace in her solitude. I did not mind their skirmishes, but Hareton was often obliged to seek the kitchen also, when the master wanted to have the house to himself, and though in the beginning she either left it at his approach, or quietly joined in my occupations, and shunned remarking or addressing him, and though he was always as sullen and silent as possible, after a while she changed her behaviour, and became incapable of letting him alone, talking at him, commenting on his stupidity and idleness, expressing her wonder how he could endure the life he lived, how he could sit a whole evening staring into the fire and dozing. "'He's just like a dog, is he not, Ellen?' she once observed. "'Or a cart-horse. He does his work, eats his food, and sleeps eternally. What a blank, dreary mind he must have!' "'Do you ever dream, Hareton? "'And if you do, what is it about? "'But you can't speak to me.' "'Then she looked at him, "'but he would neither open his mouth nor look again. "'He's perhaps dreaming now,' she continued. "'He twitched his shoulder as Juno twitches hers. "'Ask him, Ellen.' "'Mr. Hareton will ask the master to send you upstairs "'if you don't behave,' I said.' He had not only twitched his shoulder, but clenched his fist as if tempted to use it. "'I know why Hareton never speaks when I am in the kitchen,' she exclaimed on another occasion. "'He is afraid I shall laugh at him. Ellen, what do you think? He began to teach himself to read once, and because I laughed he burned his books and dropped it. Was he not a fool?' "'Were not you naughty?' I said." "'Answer me that.' "'Perhaps I was,' she went on. "'But I did not expect him to be so silly. "'Hareton, if I gave you a book, would you take it now? "'I'll try.' "'She placed one she had been perusing on his hand. "'He flung it off and muttered, "'If she did not give over, he would break her neck. "'Well, I shall put it here,' she said, "'in the table drawer.' "'and I'm going to bed.' "'Then she whispered me to watch whether he touched it, and departed. "'But he would not come near it, "'and so I informed her in the morning to her great disappointment. "'I saw she was sorry for his persevering sulkiness and indolence. "'Her conscience reproved her for frightening him off improving himself. "'She had done it effectually.' but her ingenuity was at work to remedy the injury. 
while I ironed or pursued other such stationary employments as I could not well do in the parlour, she would bring some pleasant volume and read it aloud to me. When Hareton was there, she generally paused in an interesting part and left the book lying about. That she did repeatedly, but he was as obstinate as a mule, and instead of snatching at her bait, in wet weather he took to smoking with Joseph, and they sat like automatons, one on each side of the fire, the elderly happily too deaf to understand her wicked nonsense, as he would have called it, the younger doing his best to seem to disregard it. On fine evenings the latter followed his shooting expeditions, and Catherine yawned and sighed and teased me to talk to her, and ran off into the court or garden the moment I began, and as a last resource cried and said she was tired of living, her life was useless. Mr. Heathcliff, who grew more and more disinclined to society, had almost banished Earnshaw from his apartment. Owing to an accident at the commencement of March, he became for some days a fixture in the kitchen. His gun burst while out on the hills by himself, a splinter cut his arm, and he lost a good deal of blood before he could reach home. The consequence was that, perforce, he was condemned to the fireside and tranquillity till he made it up again. It suited Catherine to have him there. At any rate, it made her hate her room upstairs more than ever, and she would compel me to find out business below that she might accompany me. On Easter Monday, Joseph went to Gimmerton Fair with some cattle and in the afternoon I was busy getting up linen in the kitchen. Earnshaw sat, morose as usual, at the chimney corner, and my little mistress was beguiling an idle hour with drawing pictures on the window panes, varying her amusement by smothered bursts of songs and whispered ejaculations and quick glances of annoyance and impatience in the direction of her cousin, who steadfastly smoked and looked into the grate. At a notice that I could do with her no longer intercepting my light, she removed to the hearthstone. I bestowed little attention on her proceedings, but presently I heard her begin, "'I've found out, Hareton, that I want—that I'm glad—that I should like you to be my cousin now, if you had not grown so cross to me.' and so rough. Hareton returned no answer. Hareton! 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 Do you hear? She continued. Get off with ye, he growled with uncompromising gruffness. Let me take that pipe, she said, cautiously advancing her hand and abstracting it from his mouth. Before he could attempt to recover it, it was broken and behind the fire. He swore at her and seized another. "'Stop!' she cried. "'You must listen to me first, and I can't speak while those clouds are floating in my face.' "'Will you go to the devil?' he exclaimed ferociously. "'And let me be!' "'No,' she persisted. "'I won't!' 
I can't tell what to do to make you talk to me, and you are determined not to understand. When I call you stupid, I don't mean anything. I don't mean that I despise you. Come, you shall take notice of me, Hareton. You are my cousin, and you shall own me. I shall have nought to do with you and your mucky pride and your damn mocking tricks, he answered. I'll go to hell body and soul before I look sideways after you again. Side out or gate now this minute. Catherine frowned and retreated to the window seat, chewing her lip, and endeavouring, by humming an eccentric tune, to conceal a growing tendency to sob. "'You should be friends with your cousin, Mr. Hareton,' I interrupted, "'since she repents of her sauciness. "'It would do you a great deal of good. "'It would make you another man to have her for a companion.' "'A companion!' he cried. "'When she hates me and does not think me fit to wipe her shoon. "'Nay, if it made me a king, I'd not be scorned for seeking her goodwill any more.' "'It is not I who hate you. "'It is you who hate me,' wept Cathy, "'no longer disguising her trouble. "'You hate me as much as Mr Heathcliff does, and more.' "'You're a damned liar,' began Earnshaw. "'Why have I made him angry by taking your part, then, a hundred times? "'And that when you sneered at and despised me, and... "'Go on, plaguing me.' "'and I'll step in yonder and say you worried me out of the kitchen.' "'I didn't know you took my part,' she answered, drying her eyes. "'And I was miserable and bitter at everybody. "'But now I thank you and beg you to forgive me. "'What can I do besides?' "'She returned to the hearth and frankly extended her hand.' He blackened and scowled like a thundercloud, and kept his fists resolutely clenched and his gaze fixed on the ground. Catherine, by instinct, must have divined it was obdurate perversity and not dislike that prompted this dogged conduct, for, after remaining an instant undecided, she stooped and impressed on his cheek a gentle kiss. The little rogue thought I had not seen her, and drawing back she took her former station by the window, quite demurely. I shook my head reprovingly, and then she blushed and whispered, "'Well, what should I have done, Ellen? He wouldn't shake hands and he wouldn't look. I must show him some way that I like him, that I want to be friends.' Whether the kiss convinced Hareton, I cannot tell. He was very careful for some minutes that his face should not be seen, and when he did raise it, he was sadly puzzled where to turn his eyes. Catherine employed herself in wrapping a handsome book neatly in white paper, and having tied it with a bit of ribbon and addressed it to Mr. Hareton Earnshaw, she desired me to be her ambassadress and convey the present to its destined recipient. "'And tell him if he'll take it. I'll come and teach him to read it right,' she said. "'And if he refuse it, I'll go upstairs and never tease him again.' 
I carried it and repeated the message, anxiously watched by my employer. Hareton would not open his fingers, so I laid it on his knee. He did not strike it off either. I returned to my work. Catherine lent her head and arms on the table till she heard the slight rustle of the covering being removed. Then she stole away and quietly seated herself beside her cousin. He trembled and his face glowed. All his rudeness and all his surly harshness had deserted him. He could not summon courage at first to utter a syllable in reply to her questioning look and her murmured petition. "'Say you forgive me, Hareton, do. "'You can make me so happy by speaking that little word.' "'He muttered something inaudible. "'And you'll be my friend?' added Catherine interrogatively. "'Nay, you'll be ashamed of me every day of your life,' he answered. "'And the more ashamed, the more you know me, and I cannot bide it. "'So you won't be my friend,' she said, smiling as sweet as honey, and creeping close up. "'I overheard no further distinguishable talk, but on looking round again, "'I perceived two such radiant countenances bent over the page of the accepted book.' that I did not doubt the treaty had been ratified on both sides, and the enemies were, thenceforth, sworn allies. The work they studied was full of costly pictures, and those and their position had charm enough to keep them unmoved till Joseph came home. He, poor man, was perfectly aghast at the spectacle of Catherine seated on the same bench with Hareton Earnshaw, "'leaning her hand on his shoulder, "'and confounded at his favourite's endurance of her proximity. "'It affected him too deeply to allow an observation on the subject that night. "'His emotion was only revealed by the immense sighs he drew "'as he solemnly spread his large Bible on the table "'and overlaid it with dirty banknotes from his pocket-book, "'the produce of the day's transactions.' At length he summoned Hareton from his seat. "'Tap these into Maester, lad,' he said, "'and bide there. I's gang up to me own ram. "'This oil's neither mensful nor seemly for us. "'We mun side out and search another.' "'Come, Catherine,' I said. "'We must side out, too. "'I've done my ironing. "'Are you ready to go?' "'It is not eight o'clock,' she answered. "'rising unwillingly. "'Hareton, I'll leave this book upon the chimney-piece, "'and I'll bring some more to-morrow.' "'On the books that ye leave I shall tack into house,' said Joseph, "'and it'll be mitch if ye find em again, so ye may please yourself. "'Cathy threatened that his library should pay for hers, "'and, smiling as she passed Hareton, went singing upstairs.' "'Lighter of heart, I venture to say, than ever she had been under that roof before, "'except, perhaps, during her earliest visits to Linton. "'The intimacy thus commenced grew rapidly, though it encountered temporary interruptions. 
Earnshaw was not to be civilised with a wish, and my young lady was no philosopher and no paragon of patience. But both their minds tending to the same point, one loving and desiring to esteem, and the other loving and desiring to be esteemed, they contrived in the end to reach it. You see, Mr. Lockwood, it was easy enough to win Mrs. Heathcliff's heart. But now I'm glad you did not try. The crown of all my wishes will be the union of those two. I shall envy no one on their wedding day. There won't be a happier woman than myself in England. End of chapter 32 Recording by Ruth Golding Main Recording by Ruth Golding Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte Chapter 33 On the morrow of that Monday, Earnshaw being still unable to follow his ordinary employments and therefore remaining about the house, I speedily found it would be impracticable to retain my charge beside me as heretofore. She got downstairs before me and out into the garden where she had seen her cousin performing some easy work, and when I went to bid them come to breakfast, I saw she had persuaded him to clear a large space of ground from currant and gooseberry bushes, and they were busy planning together an importation of plants from the grange. I was terrified at the devastation which had been accomplished in a brief half-hour. The black-currant trees were the apple of Joseph's eye, and she had just fixed her choice of flower-bed in the midst of them. "'There! That will be all shown to the master!' I exclaimed, "'the minute it is discovered. And what excuse have you to offer for taking such liberties with the garden?' "'We shall have a fine explosion on the head of it. "'See if we don't. "'Mr. Hareton, I wonder you should have no more wit "'than to go and make that mess at her bidding.' "'I'd forgotten there were Josephs,' answered Earnshaw, rather puzzled. "'But I'll tell him I did it.' "'We always ate our meals with Mr. Heathcliff. "'I held the mistress's post in making tea and carving.' "'so I was indispensable at table. "'Catherine usually sat by me, "'but to-day she stole nearer to Hareton, "'and I presently saw she would have no more discretion "'in her friendship than she had in her hostility. "'Now mind you don't talk with and notice your cousin too much,' "'were my whispered instructions as we entered the room. "'It will certainly annoy Mr. Heathcliff, "'and he'll be mad at you both.' "'I'm not going to,' she answered. "'The minute after, she had sidled to him "'and was sticking primroses in his plate of porridge. "'He dared not speak to her there, he dared hardly look, "'and yet she went on teasing till he was twice on the point "'of being provoked to laugh. "'I frowned, and then she glanced towards the master.' whose mind was occupied on other subjects than his company, as his countenance evinced, and she grew serious for an instant, scrutinising him with deep gravity. 
Afterwards she turned and recommenced her nonsense. At last Hareton uttered a smothered laugh. Mr. Heathcliff started, his eye rapidly surveyed our faces. Catherine met it with her accustomed look of nervousness and yet defiance, which he abhorred. "'It is well you are out of my reach,' he exclaimed. "'What fiend possesses you to stare back at me continually with those infernal eyes? "'Down with them, and don't remind me of your existence again. "'I thought I had cured you of laughing.' "'It was me,' muttered Hareton. "'What do you say?' demanded the master. Hareton looked at his plate and did not repeat the confession. Mr. Heathcliff looked at him a bit and then silently resumed his breakfast and his interrupted musing. We had nearly finished, and the two young people prudently shifted wider asunder, so I anticipated no further disturbance during that sitting. When Joseph appeared at the door, revealing by his quivering lip and furious eyes that the outrage committed on his precious shrubs was detected. He must have seen Cathy and her cousin about the spot before he examined it, for while his jaws worked like those of a cow chewing its cud and rendered his speech difficult to understand, he began, "'I'm uneff my wage and I'm ungo.' I had aimed to dee where I'd sarve for sixty year, and I thought I'd lug me books up into garret nor me bits of stuff, and they should have to catch into their cell for sake of quietness. It were hard to gi up me own Aston, but I thought I could do that. But now she's ten my garden from me, and by the heart, Maister, I cannot stand it. "'Yeah, me bend to the oak, and ye will. "'I known use to it. "'And an old man doesn't soon get used to new bathings. "'I'd rather earn my bite and my sup wi' hammer in the road.' "'Now, now, idiot,' interrupted Heathcliff. "'Cut it short. What's your grievance? "'I'll interfere in no quarrels between you and Nelly.' She may thrust you into the coal hole for anything I care. It's no Nelly, answered Joseph. I shouldn't shift for Nelly, nasty old newt as she is. Thank God she cannot stay up soul and nobody. She were never so handsome but what a body might look at her about winking. It's yon flaresome, graceless queen that's witched our lad with her bold een and her forehead ways till... "'Nay, it fair brusts my heart. "'He's forgotten all I've done for him and made on him, "'and gone and riven up all row at grandest currant trees in garden.' "'And here he lamented outright, "'unmanned by a sense of his bitter injuries "'and Earnshaw's ingratitude and dangerous condition. "'Is the fool drunk?' asked Mr. Heathcliff. Hareton, is it you he's finding fault with? I've pulled up two or three bushes, replied the young man. But I'm going to set them again. And why have you pulled them up? said the master. Catherine wisely put in her tongue. We wanted to plant some flowers there, 
she cried. I'm the only person to blame, for I wished him to do it. And all the devil gave you leave to touch a stick about the place, demanded her father-in-law, much surprised. And who ordered you to obey her? he added, turning to Hareton. The latter was speechless. His cousin replied, You shouldn't grudge a few yards of earth for me to ornament, when you have taken all my land. Your land, insolent slut, you never had any, said Heathcliff. And my money, she continued, returning his angry glare, and meantime biting a piece of crust, the remnant of her breakfast. Silence! he exclaimed. Get done and be gone. And Hareton's land, and his money, pursued the reckless thing. Hareton and I are friends now, and I shall tell him all about you. The master seemed confounded a moment. He grew pale and rose up, eyeing her all the while with an expression of mortal hate. "'If you strike me, Hareton will strike you,' she said. "'So you may as well sit down.' "'If Hareton does not turn you out of the room, I'll strike him to hell,' thundered Heathcliff. "'Damnable witch! Dare you pretend to rouse him against me? Off with her, do you hear?' "'Fling her into the kitchen. "'I'll kill her, Ellen Dean, "'if you let her come into my sight again.' "'Hareton tried under his breath "'to persuade her to go. "'Drag her away,' he cried savagely. "'Are you staying to talk?' "'And he approached to execute his own command. "'He'll not obey you, wicked man, any more,' "'said Catherine. "'And he'll soon detest you as much as I do.' "'Wished, wished,' muttered the young man reproachfully. "'I will not hear you speak so to him. I've done.' "'But you won't let him strike me,' she cried. "'Come, then,' he whispered earnestly. "'It was too late. Heathcliff had caught hold of her. "'Now you go,' he said to Earnshaw. "'Accursed witch!' This time she has provoked me when I could not bear it, and I'll make her repent it for ever. He had his hand in her hair. Ayrton attempted to release her locks, entreating him not to hurt her that once. Heathcliff's black eyes flashed. He seemed ready to tear Catherine in pieces, and I was just worked up to risk coming to the rescue when of a sudden his fingers relaxed. He shifted his grasp from her head to her arm and gazed intently in her face. Then he drew his hand over his eyes, stood a moment to collect himself, apparently, and turning anew to Catherine, said with assumed calmness, "'You must learn to avoid putting me in a passion, or I shall really murder you some time.' Go with Mrs. Dean and keep with her, and confine your insolence to her ears. As to Ayrton Earnshaw, if I see him listen to you, I'll send him seeking his bread where he can get it. Your love will make him an outcast and a beggar. Nelly, take her, and leave me, all of you, leave me. 
I led my young lady out. She was too glad of her escape to resist. The other followed, and Mr. Heathcliff had the room to himself till dinner. I had counselled Catherine to dine upstairs, but as soon as he perceived her vacant seat he sent me to call her. He spoke to none of us, ate very little, and went out directly afterwards, intimating that he should not return before evening. The two new friends established themselves in the house during his absence, where I heard Hareton sternly check his cousin on her offering a revelation of her father-in-law's conduct to his father. He said he wouldn't suffer a word to be uttered in his disparagement. If he were the devil, it didn't signify. He would stand by him, and he'd rather she would abuse himself, as she used to, than begin on Mr. Heathcliff. Catherine was waxing cross at this, but he found means to make her hold her tongue by asking how she would like him to speak ill of her father. Then she comprehended that Earnshaw took the master's reputation home to himself, and was attached by ties stronger than reason could break, chains forged by habit, which it would be cruel to attempt to loosen. She showed a good heart thenceforth in avoiding both complaints and expressions of antipathy concerning Heathcliff, and confessed to me her sorrow that she had endeavoured to raise a bad spirit between him and Hareton. Indeed, I don't believe she has ever breathed a syllable in the latter's hearing against her oppressor since. When this slight disagreement was over, they were friends again and as busy as possible in their several occupations of pupil and teacher. I came in to sit with them after I had done my work, and I felt so soothed and comforted to watch them that I did not notice how time got on. You know, they both appeared in a measure my children. I had long been proud of one, and now I was sure the other would be a source of equal satisfaction. His honest, warm and intelligent nature shook off rapidly the clouds of ignorance and degradation in which it had been bred, and Catherine's sincere commendations acted as a spur to his industry. His brightening mind brightened his features and added spirit and nobility to their aspect. I could hardly fancy it the same individual I had beheld on the day I discovered my little lady at Wuthering Heights, after her expedition to the crags. While I admired and they laboured, dusk drew on, and with it returned the master. He came upon us quite unexpectedly, entering by the front way, and had a full view of the whole three ere we could raise our heads to glance at him. Well, I reflected, there was never a pleasanter or more harmless sight, and it will be a burning shame to scold them. The red firelight glowed on their two bonny heads, and revealed their faces animated with the eager interest of children. For though he was twenty-three and she eighteen, 
each had so much of novelty to feel and learn that neither experienced nor evinced the sentiments of sober, disenchanted maturity. They lifted their eyes together to encounter Mr. Heathcliff. Perhaps you have never remarked that their eyes are precisely similar, and they are those of Catherine Earnshaw. The present Catherine has no other likeness to her except a breadth of forehead and a certain arch of the nostril that makes her appear rather haughty, whether she will or not. With Hareton, the resemblance is carried farther. It is singular at all times. Then it was particularly striking, because his senses were alert and his mental faculties wakened to unwanted activity. I suppose this resemblance disarmed Mr. Heathcliff. He walked to the hearth in evident agitation, but it quickly subsided as he looked at the young man, or, I should say, altered its character, for it was there yet. He took the book from his hand and glanced at the open page, then returned it without any observation, merely signing Catherine away. Her companion lingered very little behind her, and I was about to depart also, but he bid me sit still. "'It is a poor conclusion, is it not?' he observed, having brooded a while on the scene he had just witnessed. "'An absurd termination to my violent exertions.' I get levers and mattocks to demolish the two houses, and train myself to be capable of working like Hercules, and when everything is ready and in my power, I find the will to lift a slate off either roof has vanished. My old enemies have not beaten me. Now would be the precise time to revenge myself on their representatives. I could do it, and none could hinder me. But where is the use? I don't care for striking. I can't take the trouble to raise my hand. That sounds as if I had been labouring the whole time only to exhibit a fine trait of magnanimity. It is far from being the case. I have lost the faculty of enjoying their destruction, and I am too idle to destroy for nothing. Nelly, there is a strange change approaching. I am in its shadow at present. I take so little interest in my daily life that I hardly remember to eat and drink. Those two who have left the room are the only objects which retain a distinct material appearance to me, and that appearance causes me pain amounting to agony. About her I won't speak, and I don't desire to think but I earnestly wish she were invisible. Her presence invokes only maddening sensations. He moves me differently. 
and yet, if I could do it without seeming insane, I'd never see him again. You will perhaps think me rather inclined to become so, he added, making an effort to smile, if I try to describe the thousand forms of past associations and ideas he awakens or embodies. But you'll not talk of what I tell you and my mind is so eternally secluded in itself. It is tempting, at last, to turn it out to another. Five minutes ago, Hareton seemed a personification of my youth, not a human being. I felt to him in such a variety of ways that it would have been impossible to have accosted him rationally. In the first place, his startling likeness to Catherine connected him fearfully with her. That, however, which you may suppose the most potent to arrest my imagination, is actually the least. For what is not connected with her to me? And what does not recall her? I cannot look down to this floor, but her features are shaped in the flags. In every cloud, in every tree, filling the air at night, and caught by glimpses in every object by day, I am surrounded with her image. The most ordinary faces of men and women my own features mock me with a resemblance. The entire world is a dreadful collection of memoranda that she did exist, and that I have lost her. Well, Hareton's aspect was the ghost of my immortal love, of my wild endeavours to hold my right my degradation, my pride, my happiness, and my anguish. But it is frenzy to repeat these thoughts to you. Only it will let you know why, with a reluctance to be always alone, his society is no benefit, rather an aggravation of the constant torment I suffer and it partly contributes to render me regardless how he and his cousin go on together. I can give them no attention any more. But what do you mean by a change, Mr Heathcliff? I said, alarmed at his manner, though he was neither in danger of losing his senses nor dying, according to my judgment, he was quite strong and healthy, and as to his reason, from childhood he had a delight in dwelling on dark things and entertaining odd fancies. He might have had a monomania on the subject of his departed idol, but on every other point his wits were as sound as mine. I shall not know that till it comes, he said, I'm only half conscious of it now. 
"'You have no feeling of illness, have you?' I asked. "'No, Nelly, I have not,' he answered. "'Then you are not afraid of death?' I pursued. "'Afraid? No,' he replied. "'I have neither a fear nor a presentiment nor a hope of death. "'Why should I?' With my hard constitution and temperate mode of living, and unperilous occupations, I ought to and probably shall remain above ground till there is scarcely a black hair on my head. And yet I cannot continue in this condition. I have to remind myself to breathe, almost to remind my heart to beat and it is like bending back a stiff spring. It is by compulsion that I do the slightest act, not prompted by one thought, and by compulsion that I notice anything alive or dead which is not associated with one universal idea. I have a single wish and my whole being and faculties are yearning to attain it. They have yearned towards it so long, and so unwaveringly, that I am convinced it will be reached, and soon, because it has devoured my existence, I am swallowed up in the anticipation of its fulfilment. My confessions have not relieved me, but they may account for some otherwise unaccountable phases of humour which I show. Oh, God, it is a long fight. I wish it were over. He began to pace the room, muttering terrible things to himself, till I was inclined to believe, as he said Joseph did, that conscience had turned his heart to an earthly hell. I wondered greatly how it would end. Though he seldom before had revealed this state of mind, even by looks, it was his habitual mood, I had no doubt. He asserted it himself, but not a soul from his general bearing would have conjectured the fact. You did not when you saw him, Mr. Lockwood, and at the period of which I speak he was just the same as then, only fonder of continued solitude, and perhaps still more laconic in company. End of chapter 33 Recording by Ruth Golding Public Domain Recording by Ruth Golding Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte Chapter 34 For some days after that evening Mr. Heathcliff shunned meeting us at meals, yet he would not consent formally to exclude Hareton and Cathy. He had an aversion to yielding so completely to his feelings, choosing rather to absent himself, and eating once in twenty-four hours, "'seemed sufficient sustenance for him. "'One night, after the family were in bed, "'I heard him go downstairs and out at the front door. 
I did not hear him re-enter, and in the morning I found he was still away. We were in April then. The weather was sweet and warm, the grass as green as showers and sun could make it, and the two dwarf apple trees near the southern wall in full bloom. After breakfast, Catherine insisted on my bringing a chair and sitting with my work under the fir trees at the end of the house, and she beguiled Hareton, who had perfectly recovered from his accident, to dig and arrange her little garden, which was shifted to that corner by the influence of Joseph's complaints. I was comfortably revelling in the spring fragrance around, and the beautiful soft blue overhead, when my young lady, who had run down near the gate to procure some primrose roots for a border, returned only half-laden, and informed us that Mr. Heathcliff was coming in. "'And he spoke to me,' she added, with a perplexed countenance. "'What did he say?' asked Hareton. "'He told me to be gone as fast as I could,' she answered. "'But he looked so different from his usual look "'that I stopped a moment to stare at him.' "'How?' he inquired. "'Why, almost bright and cheerful. "'No, almost nothing. "'Very much excited and wild and glad,' she replied. "'Night-walking amuses him, then,' I remarked, "'affecting a careless manner, "'in reality as surprised as she was, "'and anxious to ascertain the truth of her statement.' for to see the master looking glad would not be an everyday spectacle. I framed an excuse to go in. Heathcliff stood at the open door. He was pale and he trembled, yet certainly he had a strange joyful glitter in his eyes that altered the aspect of his whole face. "'Will you have some breakfast?' I said. "'You must be hungry rambling about all night.' "'I wanted to discover where he had been, "'but I did not like to ask directly. "'No, I'm not hungry,' he answered, averting his head, "'and speaking rather contemptuously, "'as if he guessed I was trying to divine the occasion of his good humour. "'I felt perplexed.' I didn't know whether it were not a proper opportunity to offer a bit of admonition. "'I don't think it right to wander out of doors,' I observed, instead of being in bed. "'It is not wise, at any rate, this moist season. I dare say you'll catch a bad cold or a fever. You have something the matter with you now.' "'Nothing but what I can bear,' he replied." "'and with the greatest pleasure, provided you'll leave me alone. "'Get in and don't annoy me.' "'I obeyed, and in passing I noticed he breathed as fast as a cat. "'Yes,' I reflected to myself, "'we shall have a fit of illness. "'I cannot conceive what he has been doing.' "'That noon he sat down to dinner with us, "'and received a heaped-up plate from my hands, "'as if he intended to make amends for previous fasting. 
I've neither cold nor fever, Nelly, he remarked in allusion to my morning speech, and I'm ready to do justice to the food you give me. He took his knife and fork and was going to commence eating, when the inclination appeared to become suddenly extinct. He laid them on the table, looked eagerly towards the window, then rose and went out. We saw him walking to and fro in the garden while we concluded our meal, and Earnshaw said he'd go and ask why he would not dine. He thought we had grieved him some way. "'Well, is he coming?' cried Catherine when her cousin returned. "'Nay,' he answered. "'But he's not angry. He seemed rarely pleased, indeed. Only I made him impatient by speaking to him twice.' and then he bid me be off to you. He wondered how I could want the company of anybody else. I set his plate to keep warm on the fender, and after an hour or two he re-entered, when the room was clear, in no degree calmer. The same unnatural, it was unnatural, appearance of joy under his black brows. The same bloodless hue, and his teeth visible now and then in a kind of smile. His frame shivering, not as one shivers with chill or weakness, but as a tight-stretched cord vibrates, a strong thrilling rather than trembling. I will ask what is the matter, I thought, or who should, and I exclaimed, "'Have you heard any good news, Mr. Heathcliff?' "'You look uncommonly animated.' "'Where should good news come from to me?' he said. "'I'm animated with hunger, and seemingly I must not eat.' "'Your dinner is here,' I returned. "'Why won't you get it?' "'I don't want it now,' he muttered hastily. "'I'll wait till supper.' And Nelly, once for all, let me beg you to warn Hareton and the other away from me. I wish to be troubled by nobody. I wish to have this place to myself. Is there some new reason for this banishment? I inquired. Tell me why you are so queer, Mr. Heathcliff. Where were you last night? I'm not putting the question through idle curiosity, but... You are putting the question through very idle curiosity, he interrupted with a laugh. Yet I'll answer it. Last night I was on the threshold of hell. Today I am within sight of my heaven. I have my eyes on it, hardly three feet to sever me. And now you'd better go. You'll neither see nor hear anything to frighten you if you refrain from prying. Having swept the hearth and wiped the table, I departed, more perplexed than ever. He did not quit the house again that afternoon, and no one intruded on his solitude, till, at eight o'clock, I deemed it proper, though unsummoned, to carry a candle and his supper to him. He was leaning against the ledge of an open lattice, but not looking out. His face was turned to the interior gloom. The fire had smouldered to ashes, 
the room was filled with the damp, mild air of the cloudy evening, and so still that not only the murmur of the beck down Gimmerton was distinguishable, but its ripples and its gurgling over the pebbles, or through the large stones which it could not cover. I uttered an ejaculation of discontent at seeing the dismal grate, and commenced shutting the casements one after another, till I came to his. "'Must I close this?' I asked, in order to rouse him, for he would not stir. The light flashed on his features as I spoke. "'Oh, Mr. Lockwood, I cannot express what a terrible start I got by the momentary view. Those deep black eyes, that smile and ghastly paleness. It appeared to me not Mr. Heathcliff, but a goblin, and in my terror I let the candle bend towards the wall, and it left me in darkness. Yes, close it, he replied in his familiar voice. There, that is pure awkwardness. Why did you hold the candle horizontally? Be quick and bring another. I hurried out in a foolish state of dread, and said to Joseph, The master wishes you to take him a light and rekindle the fire, for I dared not go in myself again just then. Joseph rattled some fire into the shovel and went, but he brought it back immediately with the supper tray in his other hand, explaining that Mr. Heathcliff was going to bed, and he wanted nothing to eat till morning. We heard him mount the stairs directly. He did not proceed to his ordinary chamber, but turned into that with the panelled bed. Its window, as I mentioned before, is wide enough for anybody to get through, and it struck me that he plotted another midnight excursion, of which he had rather we had no suspicion. "'Is he a ghoul or a vampire?' I mused. I had read of such hideous incarnate demons, and then I set myself to reflect how I attended him in infancy, and watched him grow to youth, and followed him almost through his whole course, and what absurd nonsense it was to yield to that sense of horror. But where did he come from, the little dark thing, harboured by a good man to his bane? muttered superstition, as I dozed into unconsciousness. And I began, half dreaming, to weary myself with imagining some fit parentage for him, and repeating my waking meditations I tracked his existence over again with grim variations, at last picturing his death and funeral, of which all I can remember is being exceedingly vexed at having the task of dictating an inscription for his monument, and consulting the sexton about it, and as he had no surname and we could not tell his age, we were obliged to content ourselves with the single word Heathcliff. That came true, we were. If you enter the kirkyard, you'll read on his headstone only that and the date of his death. Dawn restored me to common sense. 
I rose and went into the garden as soon as I could see, to ascertain if there were any footmarks under his window. There were none. He has stayed at home, I thought, and he'll be all right today. I prepared breakfast for the household as was my usual custom, but told Hareton and Catherine to get theirs ere the master came down, for he lay late. They preferred taking it out of doors under the trees, and I set a little table to accommodate them. On my re-entrance I found Mr. Heathcliff below. He and Joseph were conversing about some farming business. He gave clear, minute directions concerning the matter discussed, but he spoke rapidly and turned his head continually aside, and had the same excited expression, even more exaggerated. When Joseph quitted the room, he took his seat in the place he generally chose, and I put a basin of coffee before him. He drew it nearer, and then rested his arms on the table, and looked at the opposite wall, as I supposed, surveying one particular portion, up and down, with glittering restless eyes, and with such eager interest that he stopped breathing during half a minute together. "'Come now,' I exclaimed, pushing some bread against his hand. "'Eat and drink that while it is hot. It has been waiting near an hour.' He didn't notice me, and yet he smiled. I'd rather have seen him gnash his teeth than smile so. "'Mr. Heathcliff, master!' I cried. "'Don't, for God's sake, stare as if you saw an unearthly vision!' "'Don't, for God's sake, shout so loud!' he replied. "'Turn round and tell me, are we by ourselves?' "'Of course,' was my answer. "'Of course we are!' Still, I involuntarily obeyed him, as if I was not quite sure. With a sweep of his hand he cleared a vacant space in front among the breakfast things, and leant forward to gaze more at his ease. Now I perceived he was not looking at the wall, for when I regarded him alone— it seemed exactly that he gazed at something within two yards' distance. And whatever it was, it communicated apparently both pleasure and pain in exquisite extremes. At least the anguished yet raptured expression of his countenance suggested that idea. The fancied object was not fixed either, his eyes pursued it with unwearied diligence, and even in speaking to me were never weaned away. I vainly reminded him of his protracted abstinence from food. If he stirred to touch anything in compliance with my entreaties, if he stretched his hand out to get a piece of bread, his fingers clenched before they reached it and remained on the table, forgetful of their aim. I sat a model of patience, trying to attract his absorbed attention from its engrossing speculation, till he grew irritable and got up, asking why I would not allow him to have his own time in taking his meals. 
and saying that on the next occasion I needn't wait, I might set the things down and go. Having uttered these words, he left the house, slowly sauntered down the garden path, and disappeared through the gate. The hours crept anxiously by. Another evening came. I did not retire to rest till late, and when I did, I could not sleep. He returned after midnight, and instead of going to bed, shut himself into the room beneath. I listened and tossed about, and finally dressed and descended. It was too irksome to lie there, harassing my brain with a hundred idle misgivings. I distinguished Mr. Heathcliff's step, restlessly measuring the floor, and he frequently broke the silence by a deep inspiration, resembling a groan. He muttered detached words also. The only one I could catch was the name of Catherine, coupled with some wild term of endearment or suffering, and spoken as one would speak to a person present low and earnest, and wrung from the depth of his soul. I had not courage to walk straight into the apartment, but I desired to divert him from his reverie, and therefore fell foul of the kitchen fire, stirred it, and began to scrape the cinders. It drew him forth sooner than I expected. He opened the door immediately, and said, "'Nelly, come here. Is it morning?' Come in with your light. It is striking four, I answered. You want a candle to take upstairs. You might have lit one at this fire. No, I don't wish to go upstairs, he said. Come in and kindle me a fire, and do anything there is to do about the room. I must blow the coals red first before I can carry any, I replied, getting a chair and the bellows. He roamed to and fro meantime, in a state approaching distraction, his heavy sighs succeeding each other so thick as to leave no space for common breathing between. "'When day breaks, I'll send for Green,' he said. "'I wish to make some legal inquiries of him while I can bestow a thought on those matters, and while I can act calmly.' I have not written my will yet, and how to leave my property I cannot determine. I wish I could annihilate it from the face of the earth. I would not talk so, Mr. Heathcliff, I interposed. Let your will be a while. You'll be spared to repent of your many injustices yet. I never expected that your nerves would be disordered. They are at present marvellously so, however, and almost entirely through your own fault. The way you've passed these three last days might knock up a titan. Do take some food and some repose. You need only look at yourself in a glass to see how you require both. Your cheeks are hollow, and your eyes bloodshot, like a person starving with hunger and going blind with loss of sleep. "'It is not my fault that I cannot eat or rest,' he replied. 
I assure you it is through no settled designs. I'll do both as soon as I possibly can. But you might as well bid a man struggling in the water rest within arm's length of the shore. I must reach it first, and then I'll rest. Well, never mind, Mr. Green. As to repenting of my injustices, I've done no injustice, and I repent of nothing. I'm too happy, and yet I'm not happy enough. My soul's bliss kills my body, but does not satisfy itself. Happy, master, I cried. Strange happiness. If you would hear me without being angry, I might offer some advice that would make you happier. What is that? he asked. Give it. You are aware, Mr. Heathcliff, I said, that from the time you were thirteen years old, you have lived a selfish, unchristian life, and probably hardly had a Bible in your hands during all that period. You must have forgotten the contents of the book, and you may not have space to search it now. Could it be hurtful to send for someone? some minister of any denomination, it does not matter which, to explain it, and show you how very far you have erred from its precepts, and how unfit you will be for its heaven, unless a change takes place before you die. I'm rather obliged than angry, Nelly, he said, for you remind me of the manner in which I desire to be buried. It is to be carried to the churchyard in the evening. You and Hareton may, if you please, accompany me. And mind particularly to notice that the sexton obeys my directions concerning the two coffins. No minister need come, nor need anything be said over me. I tell you I have nearly attained my heaven, and that of others is altogether unvalued and uncoveted by me. And supposing you persevered in your obstinate fast and died by that means, and they refused to bury you in the precincts of the kirk, I said, shocked at his godless indifference, how would you like it? They won't do that, he replied. If they did, you must have me removed secretly. And if you neglect it, you shall prove, practically, that the dead are not annihilated. As soon as he heard the other members of the family stirring, he retired to his den, and I breathed freer. But in the afternoon, while Joseph and Hareton were at their work, he came into the kitchen again, and, with a wild look, bid me come and sit in the house. He wanted somebody with him. I declined, telling him plainly that his strange talk and manner frightened me, and I had neither the nerve nor the will to be his companion alone. I believe you think me a fiend, he said with his dismal laugh. Something too horrible to live under a decent roof. Then, turning to Catherine, who was there, 
and who drew behind me at his approach, he added, half sneeringly, "'Will you come, Chuck? I'll not hurt you. No, to you I've made myself worse than the devil. Well, there is one who won't shrink from my company. By God, she's relentless.' Oh, damn it, it's unutterably too much for flesh and blood to bear, even mine. He solicited the society of no one more. At dusk he went into his chamber. Through the whole night and far into the morning, we heard him groaning and murmuring to himself. Hareton was anxious to enter, but I bid him fetch Mr. Kenneth, and he should go in and see him. When he came, and I requested admittance and tried to open the door, I found it locked, and Heathcliff bid us be damned. He was better, and would be left alone, so the doctor went away. The following evening was very wet. Indeed, it poured down till day-dawn and as I took my morning walk round the house, I observed the master's window swinging open and the rain driving straight in. He cannot be in bed, I thought. Those showers would drench him through. He must either be up or out, but I'll make no more ado. I'll go boldly and look. Having succeeded in obtaining entrance with another key, I ran to unclose the panels, for the chamber was vacant. Quickly pushing them aside, I peeped in. Mr. Heathcliff was there, laid on his back. His eyes met mine so keen and fierce, I started, and then he seemed to smile. I could not think him dead, but his face and throat were washed with rain, the bedclothes dripped, and he was perfectly still. The lattice flapping to and fro had grazed one hand that rested on the sill. No blood trickled from the broken skin, and when I put my fingers to it, I could doubt no more. He was dead and stark. I hasped the window, I combed his black long hair from his forehead. I tried to close his eyes, to extinguish, if possible, that frightful, lifelike gaze of exultation before anyone else beheld it. They would not shut. They seemed to sneer at my attempts, and his parted lips and sharp white teeth sneered too. Taken with another fit of cowardice, I cried out for Joseph. Joseph shuffled up and made a noise, but resolutely refused to meddle with him. The devil's hurried off his soul, he cried, and he may have his carcass into bargain for aught I care. Eh, what a wicked un he looked, gurning at death. And the old sinner grinned in mockery. I thought he intended to cut a caper round the bed, but suddenly composing himself he fell on his knees and raised his hands, 
and returned thanks that the lawful master and the ancient stock were restored to their rights. I felt stunned by the awful event, and my memory unavoidably recurred to former times with a sort of oppressive sadness. But poor Hareton, the most wronged, was the only one who really suffered much. He sat by the corpse all night, weeping in bitter earnest. He pressed its hand and kissed the sarcastic, savage face that everyone else shrank from contemplating, and bemoaned him with that strong grief which springs naturally from a generous heart, though it be as tough as tempered steel. Mr. Kenneth was perplexed to pronounce of what disorder the master died. I concealed the fact of his having swallowed nothing for four days, fearing it might lead to trouble, and then I am persuaded he did not abstain on purpose. It was the consequence of his strange illness, not the cause. We buried him, to the scandal of the whole neighbourhood, as he wished. Earnshaw and I, the sexton and six men to carry the coffin, comprehended the whole attendance. The six men departed when they had let it down into the grave. We stayed to see it covered. Hareton, with a streaming face, dug green sods, and laid them over the brown mound himself. At present it is as smooth and verdant as its companion mounds, and I hope its tenant sleeps as soundly. But the country folks, if you ask them, would swear on the Bible that he walks. There are those who speak to having met him near the church, and on the moor, and even within this house. Idle tales, you'll say, and so say I. Yet that old man by the kitchen fire affirms he has seen two on em looking out of his chamber window on every rainy night since his death. And an odd thing happened to me about a month ago. I was going to the Grange one evening, a dark evening threatening thunder, and just at the turn of the heights I encountered a little boy with a sheep and two lambs before him. He was crying terribly, and I supposed the lambs were skittish and would not be guided. "'What is the matter, my little man?' I asked. "'There's Heathcliff and the woman yonder on at Nab,' he blubbered, "'and I done not pass "'I saw nothing.' but neither the sheep nor he would go on, so I bid him take the road lower down. He probably raised the phantoms from thinking, as he traversed the moors alone, on the nonsense he had heard his parents and companions repeat. Yet still, I don't like being out in the dark now, and I don't like being left by myself in this grim house. I cannot help it. I shall be glad when they leave it and shift to the Grange. They are going to the Grange, then, I said. Yes, answered Mrs. Dean, as soon as they are married, and that will be on New Year's Day. And who will live here then? 
"'Why, Joseph will take care of the house, "'and perhaps a lad to keep him company. "'They will live in the kitchen, "'and the rest will be shut up. "'For the use of such ghosts as choose to inhabit it?' "'I observed. "'No, Mr. Lockwood,' said Nelly, shaking her head. "'I believe the dead are at peace, "'but it is not right to speak of them with levity.' At that moment the garden gate swung to. The ramblers were returning. "'They are afraid of nothing,' I grumbled, watching their approach through the window. "'Together they would brave Satan and all his legions.' As they stepped onto the door-stones and halted to take a last look at the moon, or, more correctly, at each other by her light, I felt irresistibly impelled to escape them again and pressing a remembrance into the hand of Mrs. Dean, and disregarding her expostulations at my rudeness, I vanished through the kitchen as they opened the house door, and so should have confirmed Joseph in his opinion of his fellow-servant's gay indiscretions, had he not fortunately recognised me for a respectable character by the sweet ring of a sovereign at his feet." My walk home was lengthened by a diversion in the direction of the kirk. When beneath its walls, I perceived decay had made progress even in seven months. Many a window showed black gaps deprived of glass, and slates jutted off here and there beyond the right line of the roof, to be gradually worked off in coming autumn storms. I sought and soon discovered the three headstones on the slope next the moor, the middle one grey and half buried in the heath, Edgar Linton's only harmonised by the turf and moss creeping up its foot, Heathcliff's still bare. I lingered round them under that benign sky, watched the moths fluttering among the heath and harebells, "'listened to the soft wind breathing through the grass, "'and wondered how anyone could ever imagine unquiet slumbers "'for the sleepers in that quiet earth.'" End of chapter 34 and end of Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte Recording by Ruth Golding